We'll just go ahead and get started. So welcome back to O Comrade, Where Art Thou? Uh, as always, I'm Alex. And this is Andrew. And um, today there's certainly a lot that's happened this week. Um, Kobe Bryant died today. Um, I just saw that like 30 minutes ago. Uh, there's obviously Trump's impeachment uh, trial is going on in the Senate. Right now, uh, I think the Democrats have finished – well, they finished open their opening argument, and now Trump's attorneys um, are making their arguments. But really what we're going to focus on uh, today is something that's uh, gotten, I think, some mention in the Western news, but I, I think it got a little, of all it's up. Yeah, it got a little bit like the day that it happened, and then it kind of uh, you know, kind of went away and got, got subsumed by everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, <clears throat> so what's going on is Putin is proposing changes to the constitution of the Russian Federation, and it's very clear that these Russia or that these changes will allow Putin to stay in power uh, long after he is done being president. So to sort of mm -hmm. put this into some perspective, um, like the United States Constitution. The Russian Constitution prevents somebody from serving more than two consecutive terms as president. So while in the United States you can only serve two terms or like – I think Lyndon Johnson, if he would have won in 68, could have like um, – he could have – like he could have ran in 68 even though he finished out Kennedy's term. I mean there's mm -hmm. something like weird about that. But anyway, in Russia you can it's, serve for two I think, terms. Isn't, I think isn't the uh, – I'd have to double check this, but I believe the – the amendment that was passed after FDR, it like limits it to 10, 10 years, two terms or 10 yeah, years. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, something something like that. Um, and but in, so in Russia, anyway, what the Constitution says is that no person can serve more than two consecutive terms. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why, like when I first went to Russia, I was there the first time Putin wasn't president. Right. Medvedev, right. Uh, Dmitry Medvedev, his sort of right hand man was president. And that's because of that reason. Right. So Putin steps down, has Medvedev run as president and Putin's prime minister instead. And then once that once Medvedev has served his one term, he declines not to run again. Putin runs again. Oh, and by the way, in the interim, they change the term limits to lengthen the term limits. So anyway, Putin's now in his second his second term. So he's served one term. So now he's in his second term. I think this term is up in 2024. And so now what the issue is, right, is um, mm -hmm. he can't run again under the Constitution. He would have to do what he did before, which is step down and have somebody else run uh, and then, you know, go from there. Although it, it's sort of clear that he doesn't want to do that. Um and and we'll get we'll get into that. I mean, I guess there's always the risk that the person you put in as president uh, is not gonna, you know, respect your your wishes or, um, you know, carry out their part of the plan. Uh, but I think that really what the end game is is Putin wants to stop doing this. He wants to provide some sort of stability, uh, not only for him but for the ruling class and for Russia in general. Because as we're going to get into historically. Transitions of power in Russia from one government to the next have always been extremely uh, fraught with lots of tension, lots of um, – in some cases it's been a disaster, lots of upheaval. I think that's a good word. 
right? And, and we've talked about again and again what the goal is for Russian rulers, and that's stability. Uh, stability at home, stability with, in relations with neighbors, right? Um, but m more than anything, it's the idea of stability. And so what these constitutional amendments, at least is what I understand they are going to be, is they're going to give the parliament a lot more power. Uh, there's another state organ like the Council of um, Ministers or something like that. Um, anyway, it's sort of like an, uh, a high council of advisors. And I think the idea would be that Putin would be put in charge of that. Right. So that's mm -hmm. not an elected position. Um, that's something that would come through his party, United Russia, which, you know, is probably always going to be the majority party. And the idea is, is that he is going to have a position behind the scenes where he doesn't have to go in front of an election. He's no longer the, the face, you know, of the of Russia, you know, but he could stay in power. He can make right. sure that he keeps his hands on the reins until he dies. So what? What does that look like? Like, how would we, you know, what would be something that, like, it, Americans that are unfamiliar with this could, like, really, you know, what's a good analogy to draw? Or do we just you not know? You know, the, the, one, the one that I could think of is, have you ever watched, did you ever watch The Sopranos, Andrew? I've seen a little bit of it. I've never watched okay. it all the way through. Uh, I mean, this is something that, uh, I mean, I think that it's apt because it's a, it's a mafia analogy mm -hmm. uh, but i mean essentially so like there's this there's this whole subplot within the sopranos that you know tony is the boss of the family and he's the one who gets all the attention from the fbi and right. so he wants to minimize his exposure to things you know to wiretaps to all those sorts of things so the idea is that he's going to you know he like manipulates and uses his cousin who's going to be his mouthpiece Right. Right. So he's only going to give orders through his cousin, uh, Christopher Moltisanti. So Tony's the one who's really in charge. Right. Mm -hmm. But to the family, to the crime family, to the outside world, it's going to look like, you know, Christopher's in charge. And I think it's it's a very similar sort of analogy. Right. Like Putin is for all intents and purposes, he will continue to lead Russia. But right. as far as the as far as foreign governments are concerned, maybe even as far as his own people are concerned, right? He's not going to be the leader. And I think that that gives him several, I mean, I think that there's there's some advantages to that. One, well, what if things go really bad, right? Are they going to be bane for Putin's blood? I don't know. Probably not, right? Or maybe not. Or at least he can say, like, look, this isn't my fault. This is somebody else's fault. Um, same idea sort of with Western governments, Right. Um, I think it throws an, an, a little bit of, um, you know, mystery into it. Right. Like so when they're dealing with um, Russia's ostensible president and they're dealing with that government, are they actually dealing with the government? You know, what's going on? Who do they trust? Mm -hmm. Who can they talk to? Uh, I think all those sorts of things are, are at play. Right. Um, and I think some of it, too, it's it's a move to save face. Um, you know, economically, things in Russia haven't been that great since the annexation of Crimea. Um, there are deep structural problems within the uh, within the Russian society, within the Russian state, within the Russian economy, and they're going to need to be dealt with um, on on one level or another. And I think on some level too, this is another way for you know them for the 
you know, power structure to undertake dramatic reform while limiting the blowback to Putin personally. So, okay, this is, that all makes sense, except the problem is, is if, if we all kind of know that Putin is still going to be the, you know, the Don, the Godfather. Right, sure. Even though if he's technically not the one, you know, signing the papers, um, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of it? I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think so because it it's sort of he he doesn't have to be the face of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like if things go bad, he's not going to be the one getting in, uh, getting on TV and telling everybody this. Right. You know, he's not going to be the one who has to interface with foreign governments. Um, and I, I mean, I think the other thing, though, I think more than anything, what he's really worried about, right, is every time he runs for an election, that's a referendum on him. Right. right? Okay. Yeah. And now he doesn't have to do that. And and I do think that there's, you know, I, I think that another element of this, too, is that there are some Russians or I think there are elements elements within Russian society that if he were to, you know, like at the last minute, um, amend the constitution to allow for a third term, which he could do, right? I mean, let's keep that in mind. I mean, with their process, um, he, he doesn't, you know, it's not like the United States where it's almost impossible to amend the constitution, right. especially in a hyper-partisan environment. It's not like that at all. Like he already had them amended once to extend the term limits for a president from four to six years, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he could – if he wanted to make the play of let's just get rid of term limits, he could do that, right? I think this is the smarter play for him personally though, right, because it takes him behind the scenes. So he still is in power. He's still getting – you know, he's still in, in control of the, of the state uh, apparatus, but – he he's not front and center anymore. And I think on some level, too, like we talked about Surkov and we talked about, um, you know, confusing yeah. people as to what's really going on. And I think this is just another element of this, because, you know, certainly we can speculate that, you know, really what Putin's doing. And, and of course, all the media I've seen says exactly what we're talking about, that, you know, he's going to stay firmly in control. He's just going to be more behind the scenes. But it gives that element of plausible deniability. Uh, right. And and I think another element of it, too, is and, – and again, we'll talk about this. But when you have a state, right, or when you have a political party uh, as the American Republican Party is right now, that is essentially a – I don't want to say like a cult of personality, but so heavily invested. Let's say this. So heavily invested in the pers in the persona or the personage of one person. Mm -hmm. What happens when that person's gone? Right. Right. And so I think one thing that Putin especially fears, right, and, you know, this, again, would probably make him a good mafia boss, too, is, OK, let's let's say that he does what we mentioned earlier and he says, OK, I'm just going to get rid of term limits. Um, you know, I'm firmly in control of the of the state. So, yeah, I can always make sure that I win an election and I'll just stay here until I die. I mean, sure, he could do that. But I, I also think that this is a guy that cares about his legacy. And when he dies, right. Uh, if he has not named a successor, or even if he has, um, 
It could be essentially like, you know, what you see in like uh, Goodfellas or something or like Donnie Brasco, mm -hmm. like a mob war. You know, you're going to have different factions of the government because uh, there's the security forces. There's the more liberal minded, you know, econ uh, economic branch of the government. There are these oligarchs out there that have billions of dollars uh, and, and they're all going to want to make sure that their interests are looked out for. And that's not always going to mean the same person. Right. I mean, Putin, over the course of nearly 20 plus years, right, has done a very good job of bringing all these disparate, <coughs> excuse me, elements under the same power structure. And in many ways, like it's bound together by his person. So when he goes, that's it. But this is, I think, a way to sort of avoid that because he can step down. He can appoint he can nominate his successor, you know, whoever it's going to be, that person can sort of start to assume the Putin role of controlling this, you know, huge network of, of patronage of, you know, of, um, of power and whatnot. And you can transition that way and you avoid mm -hmm. sort of the bloody conflict that, that could occur. Uh, I mean, I think to me, I think that's what the ultimate objective is. So, what does this mean for? And I know that's a really, it's almost sure. an impossible question to ask. But like, what is if you're if you're if you're a normal working Russian person in Russian mm -hmm. society, how does this meaningfully change your day to day life? Does it? Doesn't it? Like, what? I mean, what is you know, what changes for you? Um, I, or can't I mean, you it's, say it's, it's, it's difficult to speculate because they actually haven't done it yet. And, right. and by the way, like there is discussion where, and sort of to, to, to clarify, um, I, I looked up these, these organs of power. So it's the state council. Mm -hmm. So he wants to give more authority to the state council, which really is sort of like an advisory body. Um, and then he also wants to limit the powers of the president and give more, you know, power to parliament. Which, again, seems – and I think that's the other thing, right, is on its face this seems like a good idea, right? Like right. when the United States should probably give more authority <laughs> to our legislative branch, right? right. But, when, but when you think about ultimately what the goal is, you know, on some level it's very cynical. It's, you know, again, I think it's – for what – for the cards that he's been dealt, for the hand he has, I think it's the best play that he's got. Well, because um, I think on that, I mean, it, it should be – we should mention that in the the years that uh, Medvedev was serving as president, Putin was serving as prime minister, correct? Yeah, he was. He, he was. And I think that it was sort of understood that, I mean, he still was in charge. Right. 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 And I mean, I think that the I think the other interesting thing about this, now that I think about it, is by wanting to weaken the presidency. Right. I mean, he's going to make sure that his successor is can't shut uh, him out. Yeah, is weaker than him. But I mean, more importantly, again, I think what you have to understand is or what people need to understand about Russia and how the state works there right now is that it is a gigantic patronage network. I mean, it is a gigantic sort of scheme to enrich yourself. You know, it's like the best jobs are with the government, um, all those sorts of things. And like who controls that network really is the major power mm -hmm. in Russia. And by... Yes, he will no longer be president. He will no longer have that sort of power, but he will control the most important 
element of the Russian state, right? And 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 right. that's something that's been true from you know going back in centuries of Russian history, right? I mean, Russia, um, the post-Soviet countries, um, to some extent. I mean, like the Baltics are different, but like you know what, Ukraine, Russia. Um, the Central Asian countries, I mean, what they're going through right now, I mean, especially Ukraine, is this transition away from where governance is a sort of, let's just say, like, um, I mean, it's not always a face-to-face -face business, but it's like a people business, right? Like, I mean, yes, there's bureaucracy. Like, yes, there are those things that exist, but the only way to cut through it and the only way to actually effectively govern is to know people, mm -hmm. uh, is to, you know, engage in graft. And things like that. And so, I mean, that's the real state here. That's the state that he's going to remain in charge of. So I think that's I think that's good to mention. But for your average Russian, I don't know how much things would change. Um, day to day life, probably not a lot. Um, uh, of course, you know, if there is some sort of like economic collapse or something else like that, I mean, yeah, things are going to be pretty different right but in their day-to-day -day life i don't think it will change too much because again like they'll be living sort of under the same power structure they've always lived in mm -hmm. uh and so you know with that in with that in mind i think it's good to talk about you know why would why does putin want to do this i mean we've talked about all the reasons right. that are personal to him uh we've we've talked you know we've pulled in the sopranos like mafia angle right like the the need to avoid a power struggle but i mean the other thing that i that i think listeners should know is that you know in the united states in the west to some extent i mean certainly there's um there's exceptions but i mean i think really more the united states you know we are not a country that has really been marked by um, the refusal of one element of society to label the government as illegitimate and to have some sort of power struggle when there's a transition, right? I mean... Um, well, I mean, I think the Civil War is certainly... Certainly there's, yes, I mean, there's the Civil War, but I mean, that was, there were other things... I mean, obviously, there were other things going on than just the fact. The, the, that, right, know, there was I, the even the the in the Civil War, the Southerners would would admit, like you know, the Confederacy Confederacy acknowledged that Abraham Lincoln won the election. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I mean is like rulers and governments put into place after a period of civil conflict, mm -hmm. right? And so, yes, like we've had the Civil War. But I mean, for the most part, right when like when I mean, when you think about in the in the um, oh, like in the FDR era, right, when you had um, you, know, you had sort of stark political divisions, you had the rise of um, like communism and socialism in the United mm -hmm. States. Like there was never, you know, a, a cry to call any of his elections illegitimate or there were never like attempts by the, you know, capitalist ruling class, right, to depose FDR and to you know, do something like that. Um, so, you know, relatively speaking, we've been relatively free of those kind of events. Wait, but... wasn't... I might. I think I might have to fact check you on that because I actually believe there... Wasn't there one one plot to, to try and overthrow FDR? I mean, if there was, it never got carried out. Well, right, <laughs> right. I know that I know that it didn't didn't happen, but uh, yeah, the the business plot was a political conspiracy in 1933 in the United States. Retired Ma Marine Corps Major General Smedley Butler claimed that wealthy businessmen were plotting to create a 
fascist veterans organization with Butler as its leader and use it in a coup d'etat to overthrow President Franklin D. Roosevelt. So there was, there were, um, there is, I guess, like some planning or attempt, but maybe, you know, the, the, the distinction here is that, uh, you know, it, when they, when they approach Butler to lead this coup, Butler says no. Yeah, he says, <laughs> he says no, no, and it doesn't, and it doesn't legitimate president. Right. Right. I mean, I don't think that we've ever had a president, as far as I can tell, right, that's been legitimately elected and then, like, overthrown in some sort of, you know, coup or, you know, mm -hmm. plot or anything like that. So, you know, I guess my point was, was, like, compared to, you know, even, like, Britain, France, when you look at their history, Germany, the transition of power has been relatively stable uh, in right. the United States. And that is really not the case in Russia. I mean, in fact, when you look at most times when there was some sort of question about what the transition would be, it was almost always marked by uh, by some sort of turmoil. I mean, the, the one that like I can the one that immediately sort of comes to mind as the first historical example that I don't think a lot of people know of. I'm sure they've heard of the band, but like, you know, Andrew, does the term Decembrists mean anything to you? Yeah. Other than, as you mentioned, the band, that's about yeah. it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the first sort of plot that comes to my mind. And it wasn't really even I mean, it was a plot. So, I mean, the Decembrist is mm -hmm. it's sort of, it's a fascinating story, I think, in Russian history and one that a lot of people don't know uh, that much about. I mean, I don't think it's widely taught in college uh, history classes uh, or I shouldn't say I should say it is taught in college, whether or not it's taught in like high school. I highly doubt it. No, you don't really but, get it in, in like I don't remember anything about it in the AP world history. So, OK. I mean, uh, on one level, like in terms of its its impact, I mean, it, it was much more of something that I think in hindsight was considered much more dramatic than at mm -hmm. the time. But so the Decembrists, you know, started off as members of the gentry. Uh, so the, you know, Russian landed class who serve in the military, uh, who have an education or, you know, and not just serve in the military, but serve in the Russian state, mm -hmm. uh, who have exposure to enlightenment ideas Right. And <clears throat> at least we're talking about there was another faction of the Decembers down in the south. We're going to talk about the ones in St. Petersburg. Uh, and, you know, really, like because of their exposure to the Enlightenment, because they served in the Napoleonic Wars, they were exposed to these you know ideas about freedom, democracy, liberty. Uh, and there was this idea anyway that that Russia should be a at least a constitutional monarchy. Right. Not an autocracy. Um, and so, Alexander. Okay, the... so uh, okay. I think you were just never mind. You're just asking. I just wanted to make sure I knew exactly when this this was during the era of the czars. Yeah, this is like 1820s. Okay. Like I think the December's revolt was 1825. Okay. Um, and so you know, in the early 1800s, you know, you have these officers being exposed to these ideas. Um, they see what's going on in Europe, right? All the revolutions that rock Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, on some level, Tsar Alexander I, um, who was the Tsar at this time, was, you know, open-minded anyway to liberal ideas, uh, to reform. Uh, didn't really do a whole lot while he was alive. Um, but, he, so, he, you know, he tolerates these secret societies, you know, these sort of gentlemen's clubs where they um you know not go 
watch strippers, but you know, get together <laughs> and debate philosophy and, and stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, he he tolerates them and he sort of allows this to 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 happen. Um, and where the December sort of get their breakthrough is, you know, at, before Alexander the first dies. Right. So in Russia, it's mm -hmm. primogeniture. So the oldest brother is going to be the next in line. So the next oldest brother of Alexander the first is Constantine. Mm -hmm. And Constantine is lives in Poland. He's like the governor general or viceroy or whatever of Poland. Uh, and I think that he was like romantically involved with a Polish noblewoman or something like that. But like anyway, he doesn't want to be czar. And so about two years before Alexander I's death, um, he goes to his brother and says, I am renouncing my claim to the throne, so it's going to pass to the next brother, which is Nicholas, who will become Tsar Nicholas I. Except that this, um, you know, that this, they don't tell anybody about this. Right. This remains secret, except among the family. So when Tsar okay. Alexander I. <laughs> Dies. I can see I can see how this could be a problem. <laughs> yeah, so as Tsar Al Alexander the first dies, most of the military thinks that and and are ready to swear loyalty to his brother Constantine because mm -hmm. they don't know about this sort of secret, you know, arrangement. And this is where the this is when the Decembrists, I mean most of whom were military officers, sort of see their chance. And so there's this moment where, you know, some of the troops are on um the, in the Winter Palace Square, uh, they're ready to take their oath to the next czar, and some of these officers are able to convince their troops not to swear loyalty to Nicholas I. And, um, and you know, the idea is, is that they're going to take over the government, they're going to issue in a new, you know, order within Russia, and it just, it doesn't pan out. Let's just say that. It's just kind of a comedy <laughs> of errors. You know, the guy that is supposed to be like their sort of you know, dictator, you know, while they, in the interim, you know, until they set mm -hmm. up the government they want, he chickens out at the last minute um, and spends most of the day, I think, wandering the streets of St. Petersburg instead of commanding his troops. Um, the soldiers themselves are confused. You know, they don't actually, like, I think a, what I've heard and what I've read is that a lot of them didn't think that what they were um, supporting was a constitutional monarchy, but they thought that they were protecting Constantine, the true right czar, from right. his brother, the usurper. Um, but let's just say that you know most of this, the Decembrists get cold feet. Um, the rebellion it lasts essentially a day. Uh, it's put down by troops that remain loyal to the czar. You know things get ironed out that indeed it is Nicholas I who's going to be the czar. Uh, the rebellions put down. Most of the Decembrists, at least the ringleaders, are hanged, uh, which is quite, you know, shocking to a lot of members of the gentry, right, of the educated class. I don't think they thought Nicholas I would go that far. Um, others, well, especially considering other... that it was the it was the, the royal family, like, you know, they were kind of the ones that brought it upon themselves by not uh, not revealing their own internal machinations of who's going to uh assume the throne oh exactly and so you know five, five i think it was five or six of the semester hanged uh others are threatened with hanging uh, famously the author dostoevsky mm -hmm. uh i believe dostoevsky was a decemberist you know sympathizer and i think that he i think he had been 
I think a death sentence was ordered against him, and then it was commuted at the last minute to exile to Siberia for a period mm-hmm. of years. So, you know, a, a lot of Russian-educated society, maybe they weren't directly involved in the Decemberist plot, or, you know, maybe they weren't a member of some of these secret societies, but I think that they were all deeply sympathetic to it. And so, you know, this comes as a huge shock to the regime, who thinks that its people are loyal and supports them, um, the reaction of the regime, you know, to kill some of the brightest members of the aristocracy right. and to exile many more members to Siberia comes at a shock to them as well. And, you know, it really, you know, Nicholas I is sort of notorious as a, you know, conservative or, you know, reactionary within within Russian history. And, but, you know, this moment, you know, sort of haunts him and haunts Russia for a long time, right? This idea of like sort of what could have been. And and if you're the ruling class, I think what especially haunts you about the Decembrists is, you know, even the gentry, right? Even the people that you think are supposed to be your strongest supporters can actually turn out to be your biggest threat. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even though the Decembrist revolt really had no chance of overturning the existing order, I think it really opened up this cleavage, um, this, um, you know, this chasm, let's say, within Russian society, between the state, between the government, between the czar, and between the gentry, and those that, you know, did want reform, right? Like those that loved their country, uh, but believed that it needed to change in order to, to, you know, to survive. And so that's sort of the first major element, right? There the first major scene that we'll talk about was the the Decembrists. So this is already sort of a lesson in the 19th century that you know you you make sure that power transitions smoothly, right? right? Because otherwise you're just asking for chaos. Well, and that's you're so that's so for... so interesting to me too because it's it's not like it's not like those tensions hadn't existed. Um, or resulted in this kind of turmoil in other European nations before this. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, the idea that the czars could just be completely unaware that uh, the, the the landed gentry class might have, you know, there might be a tension there. I don't know. That's it's It's just like, it seems like they were caught asleep at the wheel. Well, I mean, I think on some element they are, in some level they were, right? I mean, I, I think that in the end, like, at least with Alexander I, who, you know, this sort of happened under his watch, mm-hmm. um, I, I think what he thought was, okay, sure, they have liberal ideas, you know, they, they have ideas about how things can change, but in the end, like, they're loyal. Right. Right, like, they're loyal to me personally, like, they served with me, so, you know, I can let them have these sorts of ideas, Um and I don't really, you know, need to worry that they're going to try something on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, on some level, though, like that's sort of the mark of, you know, many a, of a regime, not just a Russian one. Right. Is is right. not understanding what's going on in within its constituent groups. And I think certainly the Russian state, you know, overestimated um, <clears throat> how loyal the gentry were and underestimated uh, how sympathetic they were to the, you know, these ideas which were extremely radical at the time, you know, sweeping through Europe. Um, and again, it's a mistake that they're really not going to make 
uh, again. You know, the mm-hmm. um, the the gentry are never really going to represent a serious, at least the major gentry are not going to represent a serious challenge to the regime ever again. You know, there's certainly the revolutionary groups. Uh, there's, you know, certainly other elements of society. But, I mean, for the most part, like the gentry are going to remain loyal uh, after the Decembrist revolt. But, you know, that's the that's the one major example I can think of from the czarist period, uh, which is something where, you know, I think the other thing that it still scares rulers uh, to this day in Russia, like someone like Putin, um, despite, you know, openly or publicly what he might say about the Decembrist is, you know, the Decembrist got heavily romanticized. Mm-hmm. Right. As these sort of gallant heroes who against, you know, even though all the odds were stacked against them, uh, believed in a better Russia and rose up for it. I mean, even though they were the gentry, I mean, the Soviet Union even glorified the Decembrists as, <laughs> you know, sort of these like proto-revolutionary, you know, types. And so that, I think that's the other sort of, you know, fear. And that, and that's something that always, I think, whether it's a, a U.S. government or whatever, I mean, there is something... There is an element of romanticism associated Mm -hmm. with rebellion, with the revolutionary. I mean, look at, you know, how Che Guevara has become such a consumable uh, in in the 20th and 21st century. Right. Right. Like Jacobins. Yeah. And the Jacobins as well. Right. Um, Even, you know, someone even someone like Lenin and and other Mm -hmm. Russian revolutionary figures. And so. You know, I think that element is certainly within Putin's mind that there are Decembrists out there, like, you know, not literal Decembrists, but people like that out there in Russia who, if given the chance, might try something, right? right. Sort of, you know, liberal-minded reformers. Uh, and then, you know, the the second, the, and we'll, you know, sorry for the poor segue, but I mean, the the second transition that I'm sure Putin is thinking of is what happened to Nikita um, Khrushchev, and I think I've said this before, like in Russian, his name is Khrushchev, but it it's just completely different in English. So to keep, you know, to avoid confusing people, I'll keep saying Khrushchev. Um, but, you know, Khrushchev comes to power. If you've seen the death of Stalin, I think you have sort of an idea of how he comes to power. And there's something <laughs> else, right? I mean, like, right. that's something I didn't even think about. You know, Stalin doesn't name a successor. Um, he dies suddenly or at least i should say not so yeah well suddenly and unexpectedly uh there's a huge power vacuum uh between beria lavrenti beria who ran it wasn't the kgb it was the nkvd you know who runs the secret police uh khrushchev on the other you know khrushchev is sort of able to win over like zhukov uh the main general mm-hmm. on the military to his side he's uh, he's able to win a few other party members to his side and basically beats the Beria camp. And, you know, Beria is, like, literally taken into a basement and executed with a, you know, like a general shoots him in the head with a pistol, and that's the end of that. Um, <laughs> Which he had it coming. I mean, yeah, he was well, a yeah, massive he was piece of shit. horrible human being. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, Khrushchev becomes the, the general secretary. He becomes the premier of the Soviet Union. And, you know, he, I mean, he's a very interesting figure within soviet history but you know he he launches on what his detractors will call like his harebrained schemes uh one of which is to plant tons of corn in the soviet union um (laughs) corn in places where you shouldn't be growing corn uh that's a disaster so they're facing you know food shortages Mm -hmm. because of that 
uh, he tries the Virgin Lands project, uh, which we talked a little bit about with the you know the death of the Aral Sea. You know, so the right. Virgin Lands project was to get uh, like Slavic you know peasants and farmers to move out to Central Asia to all this you know quote unquote Virgin Land that they were going to you know make arable. Uh, also oh, a disaster. This, oh, all this land, it's, it's virgin land because nothing had ever been planted on it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you know, turns when, you need out, to, when you need to divert whole rivers from yeah. where they're supposed to go. Turns yeah. out nothing has ever been planted on it for a reason. <laughs> yeah. So also like a bad idea. Um, you know, you've, everyone I think knows about the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, also something that deeply disappoints and troubles the inner circle uh, within within the mm -hmm. Soviet Union, and you know they uh, the powers that be sort of get together. They start to um, you know gather support within the party for removing um, Khrushchev, and they eventually do. You know he is he is gotten rid of um, Brezhnev, who is going to rule until like the late '60s to the early '80s. Uh, is put in his place, you know, someone who's going to adhere to what the the members of the party want. And, you know, Khrushchev is not executed. So, I mean, I guess he had that going for him. He didn't get buried his fate. Um, but he is basically made like, uh, you know, he's, what's the expression? Like he's PNG'd, you know, he's like persona non grata. Right. Uh, and he basically becomes a non-person within the Soviet Union. Uh, even though, you know, he did he did oversee some pretty tremendous achievements, right? I mean, you know, Yuri right. Gagarin, Sputnik, you know, the, the space program, um, all those sorts of things uh, occur under his reign. Under, uh, But he's almost completely forgotten. That's right? interesting because he's, he's always so, like the thing that's associated with uh, Khrushchev for me is the de-Stalinization and, you know, kind of, yeah, uh, liberalization of Russian society under, under him. Well, yes, and like he was, he was very widely admired among intellectuals because he instituted what was called the thaw, like Khrushchev's mm -hmm. thaw. So that was uh, an ease up in censorship, and that's when a lot of like you know that's when some of Solzhenitsyn's first books were published, was in Khrushchev's 1950s. You know, art was given, you know, people were given more artistic freedom. Uh, and yes, like he does put a more, I mean, I think in, in the end, right, I, I think you're correct, Andrew, that like his biggest, you know, one of his really biggest achievements was at least trying to, now it wasn't, didn't always work out this way, but at least trying to conceive of a socialist society that did not have to rely on violence, mm -hmm. right, that did not have to rely entirely on compulsion, uh, and did not have to rely on the cult of personality. And I mean, and he he tried with that, you know, he did. And I think, you know, he's sort of, uh, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like he was a completely nice guy and innocent of everything. But I mean, you know, he, he really did, I think, have this belief that, you know, that they could make the Soviet Union into something more humane. Um, but, you know, regardless, his his plans didn't, you know, work out very well. And, you know, he is basically forgotten during his the rest of his lifetime you know the soviet state deliberately denies any sort of um uh any sort of admiration for him mm -hmm. any sort of respect he's not discussed publicly anymore 
Uh, his visitors are all monitored. I mean, he wrote his memoirs, which I think in English are like Khrushchev remembers, but they had to be smuggled out of uh, the Soviet Union in 1970. Um, you know, he he basically lives um, he basically lives this sort of forgotten life. And I, I think they like I think I read something like an interview with one of his granddaughters, and they said, you know, how is your grandfather? spending his retirement or maybe it was one of his daughters and she just said like granddaddy or daddy cries all the time jesus yeah i mean he was you know he was forgotten and he was deliberately forgotten i think he's right. actually the only soviet leader that's not buried in the kremlin wall wow that's that that and that again that is just so it's interesting because again like looking at it from the american lens you know you you mentioned um the Cuban Missile Crisis, but there are a lot of key points and and high tension points in the Cold War, where Khrushchev was he was in charge, and yeah, the idea well, that shut the down idea Barry that you Powers. could ever that yeah uh, Barry Powers, but also what um uh the what was the what was the speech he gave like we will bury you or. Or oh yeah, like, the UN. Yeah, yeah. The, his UN, his famous UN speech, and it's the idea that he could ever be um, erased and kind of, you know, you, you you say forgotten, but it sounds like he was almost kind of intentionally scrubbed. Right? Yeah, that like, might be a better like word. Every, like every, like know, going through and finding all the references, and we're just gonna wipe them out and and pretend it never happened. And that idea is it's almost absurd and hard to to think about and conceptualize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 it is. Um, I mean, it was something they certainly tried to do. And I think, you know, post Soviet Union and even, you know, even I think beginning after, sorry, after Khrushchev's death, and I think in the early 70s, mm -hmm. you know, I think there's attempt an attempt to rehabilitate him because he's dead. But I mean, again, like, I think that that, the takeaway that someone like Putin might have for, you know, Khrushchev is, you know, look, if I step down, like this is what could happen to me. Right. Is someone could the the person someone else could step in and all of a sudden like I'm nobody anymore. Especially if like, you step down uh like in controversy. Yeah. Or in, you know, even a slight amount of shame. Yeah, or like during an economic downturn right. or you know, something like that. And so I think that's, you know, another thing to keep in mind. And, you know, again, like it is sort of amazing, um, you know, to go back to, to Khrushchev is, you know, you really can't. I mean, that's, I guess, one of the beautiful things about history is, you know, you can't control where it goes mm -hmm. and you can't control what future generations are going to think of you. But, you know, for someone like Khrushchev, I think to think, you know, I, I over I stood over this. Um, you know, Soviet sort of empire, for lack of a better term, uh, shepherded it after the death of Stalin, you know, made it into a, you know, continued its ascent as a global superpower. And then they treat me like I'm nothing, you know? Uh, I mean, I think that that's definitely it's that, it's that that meme, Alex, I don't know if you, you know, on like Reddit or Twitter, like the am I a joke to you meme? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. I'm, I, I have seen that. And and so yeah, that's that's the that's another time in Russian history where um, you know a, a ruler did not stay until he like he didn't die in office or wasn't like killed in mm -hmm. a you know revolution or whatever. 
Um, so again, like, you know, not, was there a lot of outward turmoil, uh, when Khrushchev was deposed? No, there wasn't, you know, life pretty much went on as normal, but I mean, for him personally, uh, for the course of the Soviet union. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very dramatic. Uh, and then, you know, the last, the so, last one, and right, I want to, I want to get, oh, I, I want to uh, stop because I know, I know the last one you wanted to speak about was Yeltsin, but, sure. um, and we talked a little bit about this beforehand that you don't necessarily think it's, it's quite fair to include him just because of the circumstances were so extenuating, but there is a little bit of that with Gorbachev too. And oh, this there was, certainly is. Yeah. And, and I was thinking, and that kind of talk inward inward turmoil um i've i've mentioned it i've mentioned it before but that meeting gorbachev documentary with um with herzog and just the the deep and profound sadness that gorbachev shows as to how he is remembered in the former Soviet Union and in Russia, and it just um, that he is remembered for being the one to lose the empire and to lose the Soviet Union and all of his other accomplishments and everything else and every other bit of good that he did is completely forgotten. And I don't know if it was necessarily um, as you know, intentional or nefarious as, as the way you described with, uh, Khrushchev where, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of intentionally deliberately removing him from, from history. But, um, I think there's, there's definitely a deep and profound personal sadness, uh, on the part of Gorbachev, how everything good of his accomplishments is overshadowed by this one thing and how he left uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that it shows, I think both Khrushchev and Gorbachev, and I think this this builds into what Putin's doing, I mean, it shows you how important it is to to be able to have some control over the narrative mm -hmm. of your of your rule, right, of your reign, uh, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, you know, because, you know, even with Stalin, like to go back to Stalin and the secret speech, Right. I mean, he doesn't you know, he dies in power. Uh, there's no successor name. But at the same time, by not like stepping down or doing what Putin's doing, he doesn't he's not able to take the time. Right. No leader's able to take the time to sort of craft the narrative about, you know, well, what what was the goal of my rule? Like, what was my rule all about? Right. right? You're letting other people do it for you. And I think on some level, like that's what happened to Khrushchev. Right. I mean, he's completely cut off from the from the channels of power uh he's you know like i said made a non-entity i think you know he's given an mm -hmm. apartment in in moscow and a dacha out in the woods and he's given like a a pension that's for soviet standards was pretty good but not what like a ex-ruler would get right that's like um, basically what everyone got <laughs> is yeah you, everyone got that apartment and the 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 summer house <laughs> <laughs> and so you know he's he's and then to go on to Gorbachev, right? I mean, the thing is, is you know, he loses his entire country, right? Mm -hmm. And he and he has no he has no place within its within its um, 
successor to sort of craft what the narrative is going to be about him. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, again, with Gorbachev, I mean, it is it is remarkable to me when you and I, and I think that this shows like I think this shows the allure that that socialism can have on somebody. Uh, I mean, even like when you look at people that leave, um, like I'm thinking about people that leave like the Catholic Church or leave some religions, um, they don't, you know, they never really go back to anything. They never really find anything else um, because, you know, they were promised like, you know, on some level, like you're promised so much. Right. Like, I mean, if you look at what the promise of like a religion is, like especially something like Catholicism, right, like love, like, you know, the forgiveness of your sins in the end. And right. I, mean, I guess we lump Christianity in with that, to, you know, as sort of one, right? But like the forgiveness of your sins, everlasting life. Uh, if you stop believing in that, what else is there, right? I mean, how do you find something that is uh, comparable to that? And I think on some level, like socialism is something very similar for a true believer. Like if you really do believe that you're constructing a heaven on earth, or if you, you know, really believe that history is moving in a certain direction. Uh, and then all of a sudden you stop believing that, well, you know, what compares to that? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think with Gorbachev, what is so, you know, and, and on some level Khrushchev, I think as well, is this deep-seated belief that they could change the world, that they could build, you know, social, like real socialism in our time. Right. They were true believers. Yes, exactly. And so when that when that collapsed, when that failed, you know, what were they left with? Uh, you know, Gorbachev, I think, did better than Khrushchev. I mean, you know, he, he had he has his wife's foundation. You know, he's sort of a continuing voice for world peace. He, he's got the Pizza Hut commercials. <laughs> yeah, he has the Pizza Hut commercials from the 90s. Um, but, you know, he he's a man who always I mean, when he when he does finally pass away, I mean, I think that like he should be remembered as someone who, you know, had lofty ideals and tried mm -hmm. to live up to them for his entire life, like no matter what happened. Um, but um, so, yeah, I mean, there, you know, that's certainly part of it, too. Like, uh, you know, going back to Putin is this idea that, you know, you don't want to be the guy who's selling Pizza Hut in the West or you don't want to be <laughs> the guy that everyone is like, you know, he's a has been or like he's right. a what could have been. Um and that, I think, is part of controlling the narrative, right? So by staying on in power, by making sure that his party stays more firmly entrenched, he can at least better guarantee, because, I mean, nothing in this life is absolute, but he can at least better guarantee that he will be remembered in a way that Khrushchev was not, right? Or in a way that Gorbachev was not. Right. Um, but then, you know, finally, I think the, the transition that hangs above him more than than anything is you know even his own transition to power right so like you know we one of our very first episodes we talked about how bad things were in the 90s under yeltsin mm -hmm. and and how you know yeltsin was like this weak leader and how russians you know yearn for somebody strong to be in charge and you know yeltsin appoints this young guy who was head of the well young at the time you know, young guy who's head of the KGB. I mean, no one had ever really heard of him before. Um, and he, you know, embarks on this this quest to sort of centralize the Russian state uh, in many ways, you know, achieves that. And, you know, now what's the question for this guy, Putin, as he faces his own twilight? 
you know, he doesn't want to be the, I, don't, I mean, I don't think he's going to be a Yeltsin, but, you know, certainly he doesn't want somebody to come along and undo everything that he's done. And I think he also believes that, um, you know, more than anything, that Russia needs a strong leader because that's what marked, that's what let him come to power was the weakness of the person that came before him. Mm-hmm. Right. If Yeltsin hadn't had all these problems, you know, whether it was alcoholism or, you know, needing to rely on the um, <clears throat> or needing to rely on the West, specifically the United States for money. Right. Or, you or know, to get him elected. Support. <laughs> yeah. You know, relying on the oligarchs for their money and their media. Regardless of, you know, all of that, Putin saw that and was like, you know, he probably is sitting wherever he's sitting right now. And I'm sure on some level he knows, like. If Yeltsin had been stronger or, you know, maybe if Yeltsin had had a, a strong successor in the wings, like I wouldn't be here right now. Right. Certainly, you know, he'd be serving in the government apparatus somewhere. But I think he understands that. Right. And and Yeltsin, too, was somebody who, you know, once he was no longer president, people essentially forgot about him. Right. I mean, there right. wasn't a whole lot to, you know, no offense to, to Yeltsin, but I mean, he was somebody who was kind of like a, a good racehorse, I guess, like or bad racehorse. He came out of the gate strong and then he faded. <laughs> he faded down the stretch. You know, he, he had a lot of cachet because he stood up to the communists. Um, he he prevented the, you know, speaking of Gorbachev, um, have you heard of the hardliners coup that, that Yeltsin helped stop? Uh, yes. I, I don't know if I'd be able to go in depth about, but I, okay. I seem to recall that this was, was this when he was like mayor of Moscow or something? Uh, or... Well, he was, I think he was head of the, excuse me, the Russian Communist Party, right? So there's okay. like, you know, the Russian Communist Party, Ukrainian Social Communist Party. I think he was head of the Russian Communist Party. But um, anyway, uh, Gorbachev was like on vacation in Crimea. Yes. Uh, you know, hell of a time to go on vacation. But these hardline generals fly down there, basically put him under house arrest and attempt a coup in Moscow, right? Like send in yes. some, I think they're like paratroopers or this something. Is, like send... This is discussed in the meeting Gorbachev documentary. That's yeah, where, like when, you know, yep. when Yeltsin stands on the tank. Like yes, that yep, that's it. Image of Yeltsin standing on the tank. Like Yeltsin rallies the Muscovites they, you know, stop this this putsch or this coup, whatever you want to call it, because in the end, like these paratroopers, I think were not, you know, they were not willing to kill their own citizens uh, to prop right. up the Soviet Union. And so the rebellion falls apart. Uh, the leaders, the generals that started, you know, really don't want to push it to its, you know, bloody extreme. And, you know, Yeltsin becomes, you know, he gets this image of strength, right? But then it, it just slowly, like, whittles away um, throughout the 90s, right? As the as shock therapy fails, you know, the economic transition fails, as the war in Chechnya drags on, as Russia is sort of humiliated when it can't stand up for Serbia, right? When, like, Serbia is being bombed by NATO. Um, you know, all these things happen. And, you know, right as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about uh, The Dark Knight in that movie or that movie. And then when uh, Harvey Dent is like, you know, you either like die or you live long enough <laughs> die to see hero or live long enough to, Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that in the end, what this transition to for Putin is about is like, you know, I'm sure he can look back on 20 years and 
grand scheme of Russian history and like putting aside human rights and things like that, like I don't want to, you know, make it sound like I'm being mm -hmm. a total apologist, but it was a relatively stable period in Russian history, right? He proceeded over a great increase in oil prices, which greatly increased the state budget, um, which did allow them to improve living standards. They hosted an Olympics. They hosted a World Cup. Uh, they regained a piece of territory that, you know, mm -hmm. as we discussed in prior episodes, is considered a deeply, you know, like very considered by many Russians to be a very integral and, um, you know, almost like have this spiritual bond to the rest of Russia itself. Um, they're they're one of they have one of the lowest, like, I think, debt figures in terms of like, you know, debt to GDP. So they've been extremely fiscally conservative and have, you know, used the oil money to create these big sovereign wealth funds. Uh, you know, they're not like at the mercy of the IMF, like um, like Yeltsin's Russia was. Right. And, you know, he can look back on all of that and say, and, and I think, he, you know, he can say like, yeah, like we've come a long way. Um, even like I'm thinking about the 2016 election, right, to do something right. that the Soviet <laughs> Union could only have dreamed of. Right. Right. And he can he can look back and he can say that. But I think that he has to know, like every, I think, political leader goes and, you know, knows that the good times are only going to last for so long. Right. Like something bad is eventually going to happen. And the real virtue of politics is to be in power when it's good and not to be in power when things are bad. Right. And I and I think that, you know, in the end, <clears throat> like we talked about what this is going to mean for the average Russian. I you know, again, I, I can't really say, but I think that if Putin thinks that it's bad enough or that if he's looking ahead and thinks that he has to do this. Right. I, I don't think it can necessarily be a good thing, because if, you know, they were living high on the hog and, you know, oil prices were good and things were good. Why step down? You know, right. what's the point? I mean, yes, there are those historical reasons we talked about, but at the same time, you can deal with that while you're still in power of uh, this. To me, I mean, I think it's I think it's a couple of things. I think it's those historical examples we talked about, like preparing his legacy Right. Like almost like those like those Egyptian pharaohs or maybe I'm making this up, but like, you know, how they they get to take all their crap with them when they die. So, you know, he's already <laughs> like, assembling the, you know, the stuff that he's going to carry with him. And, you know, in the end, um, you know, he's in a sense like already. Well, yeah, maybe that's a good way to think about it. Like in, in Egypt, right? like they're already building the pyramid when the pharaoh's still alive. Right. Right. I mean, I think on some level this is what's going on. Um. And, and on another level, I mean, I think he's looking ahead and I think that he's going to and maybe this can be our big takeaway is like, you know, maybe he is going to try to be the first ruler, the least that I can think of in Russian history, that has a fairly clean transition of power that's not remembered by, um, you know, by something like the Decembrists. You know, he's not going to wind up, uh, you know, living, you know, a sort of a broken man living on a bare bones pension uh, in Moscow somewhere, not allowed to, see, you know, receive visitors and denied, mm -hmm. you know, sort of his very existence. Uh, and, and he's not going to be and I don't think he wants to be a man who, like Gorbachev and Yeltsin who are, you know, <laughs> remembered for their weakness. Or, yeah, like in Gorbachev's case, like selling Pizza Hut. <laughs>
you know, in the end, I think that that's that's what the end goal is. You know, whether or not the Russian people allow him to do that, you know, I don't know. I mean, he is like I think the interesting thing, and this is either going to be a genius move, or it's going to backfire tremendously. But I mean, there's talk that this referend that this these constitutional changes would would be approved in a popular referendum, and that's brilliant. I think because if it passes, then he basically has cover for it, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it has a veneer of legitimacy. Uh, it, it seemingly has you know the approval of the people. Uh, if it fails, then. I think that can only be that can only say one thing and that it's people are tired of the Putin regime. But, right. you know, if I was a betting man, I'd have to say that it, it would pass. So, yeah, that's where we are. I mean, we're, we're left with this again, this this proposition that, you know, Putin will be. I mean, that's the other thing that he I think he already is. Uh, and, and will be is the longest, you know, the longest, uh, the r- ruler who's ruled Russia for the longest period of time. Uh, more longer than Stalin, you know, longer than um, like Catherine the Great, longer than any of them. That's pretty. So, that's pretty wild when you think about all their time as a as a monarchy, and considering he's only, you know, if you, I'm assuming in that in that figure you're counting his uh, his years. As the prime minister, yeah, right? I am. I right? am. So I mean, it's still um, only like twenty years. But even then, like if you count, if you take out yeah. the time he wasn't prime minister, um, it's still like sixteen years. I mean, that's still yeah. quite a long time. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it'll be. I mean, he was appointed, I think, in like late ninety, like late ninety nine. So and by so. the time his term is up, it'll be twenty twenty four. So I mean, you know, there there are there ostensibly, well, there are. There are going to be twenty four year old Russians who that's the only leader they've ever known. Well, it's, it's interesting. So I guess, and I mean, we'll see what happens because no one Yeah, knows. I mean, we'll see, you know, we'll see what happens. And <laughs> I mean, I think that it's something, you know, right now, like to put it into context of, you know, what's going on here in the United States is, and, and, and again, I don't want to diminish what's going on right now. Like, I don't want to diminish... Um, the dangers, I think, of the entire process that's playing out right now. But I mean, I think that when you look at Russia and you look at the United States, I mean, I think it does say something to our system's credit anyway, that at least for right now, like, I don't know what's going to happen if Trump actually loses the 2020 election. But, you know, that that Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party uh, or Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden and and the rest are able to run against him. Mm -hmm. And and even then, looking back at 2016, like in, I mean, I think this too just shows you what a disaster the electoral college is. Like, I was just talking to somebody today, and I think that like it would do so much good for our psyche as Americans if we can just admit that, hey, maybe the founding fathers didn't know everything there was to know about everything. <laughs> uh, but um, that you know that it could be possible, right? That there would be a country. Or there would be an election in which, you know, the candidate, a candidate loses the popular vote and <clears throat> somehow still becomes the president. Mm-hmm. Right. And was there, you know, OK, despite all the Fox News and right wing crap that's out there, has there was there been a legitimate attempt to remove or to, to you know, remove Trump from office? I mean, I guess if you want to say this whole impeachment thing is that 
again, no, because that was never going to... Right. No one actually believed that this would actually, you know, remove him. And and And, all all the deep state, you know, like you said, all that stuff is that's not serious it's it's nothing as serious as like what the you know when we were talking about the business plot against fdr was it's yeah it's nothing like that and and i think you know in the end i mean you never know but i mean we'll see what happens in 2020 i mean i i would think that there you know there might be some talk about him not stepping down if he loses but i mean i think in the end i think that he i think he would um, I mean, especially if he can, you know, flee abroad to Russia and, and live out his days in, <laughs> in Trump Tower, Moscow, right. or whatever. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, that is, you know, that is the main difference. Uh, and, and that is something to keep in mind, you know, as we move forward, that for at least for an American audience, you know, I, I, what I hope you get from this is that on some level, we are extremely fortunate to have the transitions in, in power that we do have. Um, and on the other, I think it gives it gives you a deeper insight into, I, I, I would hope anyway, as to why Putin would do something like this, and more importantly, like why does you know at least one country, Russia, not have the transitions of power that that you and I sort of take for granted. Um, so I think that's it for today. Uh, we appreciate, you know, uh, as always, you tuning in and listening. I think we got another review on uh, Apple yeah. uh, Podcasts, <laughs> so we're up to eight eight reviews, and we got another comment. So we're, you know, slowly accumulating our uh, our cred out there on the internet. Um, but again, we uh, we appreciate all of you who listen in. Uh, we appreciate your comments. So we want to hear, you know, more feedback from you. Um, especially like as far as episode ideas go, because uh, if not, then we're just going to keep, you know, uh, talking about what's what's happening in the news, which obviously there's no shortage of, but we all would always be happy to take a, a, a divergence from that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let us know. All right. Well, thanks again for listening, folks. And uh, any idea, Alex, what next we'll be talking about? Anything? Oh, that's around? a good question. Well, I mean, at that point, um, I mean, I was sort of thinking be- that Trump's trial, if you want to call it that in the Senate, might be over by next week. Who I knows? believe I believe so. I, even, I think it's even, supposed to be done. I think um, even, if next it's, days. even if it's not, I think it would be worthwhile to sort of discuss the idea of like show trials Not that I think that this is like a kangaroo court, but it's almost like the reverse, right? Where like, I think on some level, if you're Trump and the GOP, you want this and you want the summary acquittal. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I, I, cause I, I haven't exactly thought it all out yet, but I think that there's some sort of comparison to be made between the, the, what's going on now and sort of the famous Soviet trials in the thirties where they, you know, brought these people up on trumped up charges and like everyone was a wrecker. That was a term, you know, like someone who wrecked a factory to, you know, halt the five year plans. Um, And I mean, I think that it's worth discussing just in the idea of like, not like justice as in like, you know, superhero justice or, you know um, I don't know um, that kind of justice, but like justice is like a performance, Mm -hmm. right? Like justice is like a show. Um, because I think there's very much a part of that that, I mean, even lives on in our own system, right? Like with the bailiff and all rise and all those sorts of things. And so, I mean, I think that it it would be interesting to talk about like, well, what does this, 
Like, what does justice mean? Like, what does a trial mean when the outcome is already completely assured and it's not really even about evidence or, you know, anything like that? Right. And so I think that there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, like, who knows what's going to happen uh, <laughs> in the next week? So. All yeah. right. Well, that sounds sounds good. So thanks again for listening, folks. And we'll see you next week or week after, whenever, whenever we get around to it. <laughs> yep. All right. Sounds good. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, 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 oh,